by the end of the day, maybe, I don't know, a thousand people will have seen this, this presentation. Uh, today, as we talk through these things, we're, gonna, we're shifting into a, a new series. Um, so you might want to plan a few meetings with us, a few appointments with us in your schedule. We're going to be talking about uh, the Apostle Paul who starts out his life as a guy named Saul. We'll start with Saul today, and we'll work toward what, what transforms him and transforms the direction of his life. But again, I want to thank you for being a part of this with us. Um, and I want to start with a, a, a story, a question. Um, there's a strategic planner, a specialist consultant in strategic planning named Mike Cammie. I don't know if he still does this, but he used to use a specific illustration with people when he was trying to get them down to the core of what was important. And so he would have a long conversation with them, a couple hours sometimes. And uh, as, they, as the, 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 those who write about their experiences with him say, um, the conversation would go on lots of topics. They would roam around trying to understand what was core, what was important, what were, what were the values leading to, what was the central theme, what was the most important thing about what they did, and he was, he was actually doing this with Coca-Cola one time, and um, you'll, you'll recognize the era if you've been paying attention for the last 20 years. Um, he was sitting there with co- the Coca-Cola leaders. They had gone through a bunch of discussions about their company and what's important and what was significant and this and that and the other, and finally, after a couple hours of this, he draws a box, and he asks them, what's in your box? What is the thing that occupies the box? Only one thing can go in there. What will occupy that box? Two or more things, you're going to divide your strategies. You're going to go off in different directions. If you can tell me what goes in the box, I can tell you what the strategies are going forward. And the folks in Coca-Cola got their heads together and they talked a little bit. And they said, the, the thing that's in the box, the thing that's most important is taste. And so they, in an imaginary way, they put taste in that box. Now, I don't know if you were, if you were a, a Coke drinker. I'm not a big Coke fan, personally. But out of that idea, out of that concern, out of that strategic moment, came something called New Coke. Now, if you know something about what happened, New Coke was an utter failure, a complete failure. And no one really liked it. There, was some, there were people who were frustrated with it. Why are you changing Coke? Come on. I like Coke because it's Coke. I don't like Coke because you change it to something else. They went back to the drawing board, and they sat again with him, and they talked again about what should be in the box. And what they decided was that Coke was an American tradition, and that should be in the box. And as you recall, they ended the life of new Coke pretty quickly, and they went back to original, and they began to promote that traditional flavor. If you remember, the commercials from the era, they were all tied toward Coke's history with America, and they tried to bring us back to that warm feeling of, of this, this brand that we had known for a hundred years. What is in your box this morning? What occupies that one space that sets everything else on its plan? What is that in my box? What have we in that box that sets the strategy, that decides what will be the anchor for how we go forward. The reason I wanted to bring this up to you, the reason I wanted to start here today is because this guy, Saul, the guy we're talking about today, has 
some things in his box. He's sure about the things in his box. And as we pick him up in the book of Acts, chapter 9, if you're looking for Acts and you have one of these in your hand, look where it is in my Bible. You can see that it's probably, oh man, it's, it's uh, at least three quarters, maybe seven-eighths of the way through the Bible. And this Bible doesn't have a lot of things in the back, just a couple of maps. So it's back, after the, it's back toward the middle to the end of the New Testament. It's before all the small books start. New Testament's about two-thirds of the way through. You get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. That's where we're going to be, Acts chapter 9. And we'll actually be here as we're walking through Paul's life and talking about the changes that take place. We'll roam around some of his writings and things, but a lot of our time will be spent here in this book, in the book of Acts. And so in Acts chapter 9, we've been introduced to this man, Saul. His name is going to be changed to Paul. One letter changes everything. And this man, Saul... In the, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, has had an encounter with a man named Stephen. In fact, he's there as a group of people who have decided against Stephen. A, a group of people who have judged Stephen for his Christianity. And they actually take him outside the city and stone him. And the Bible says that Paul was holding the coats of those who were doing the stoning. And so chapter 9 starts out with, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the story starts out with him still breathing out these these angry things. He's still speaking these threats and murderous intent against the disciples of the Lord. Understand where, we're, where we are here. We're within three years, three and a half years of the death of Jesus. So the church has been growing. A lot of things have been going on. And the church does look like a threat to the religious norms. The church does look like a big threat on the horizon. If you've read through these first few chapters in the book of Acts, you would know that thousands of people have been baptized. On one day, 3,000. Another, another, uh, several thousand. There are people joining this group from all across Jerusalem and all ways of life in Jerusalem. So priests are joining. Scribes are joining. Pharisees are joining. Sadducees are joining. Wealthy people are joining. Poor people are joining. The church is starting to disrupt every quarter of society in and about Jerusalem. And as a result, the norms of how religion is done are getting messed up. This guy, Saul, rises, rises in his authority, rises to, to some power in that moment. He goes to the high priest because he's going to spread ministry out. He's going to do something else now. He's going to move beyond the walls of Jerusalem. He's going to move outside. He goes to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogue. So c- catch this in, in, the, in its context for a minute. He doesn't have any authority in Damascus. No one really knows him in Damascus. He's a fairly young guy. He has to have a letter representing his authority from the leaders in Jerusalem to the leaders in the synagogues in Damascus. Think when you read synagogue, think uh, Jewish style church in the first century. Synagogue is still the place where Jewish, our Jewish brothers meet and, and uh, meet for worship. Synagogue in Damascus. He wants notes to the leaders of those synagogues so that he can go and talk to them about these Christians because he is seeking to find them. And if he finds anyone of the way. Now, I want you to stop and look at that word for a minute. Um, the way. 
this seems to be the first name the church takes. This gets repeated several times in the book of Acts. The first name the church takes is the way. Um, think of it as the walk, the direction. Um, it's, it, this is the way you follow after God. <clears throat> the way, still used today, we still talk about the way, the truth, the life. The way in, in that context would have come out of a, a Hebrew idea called the halakha. Halakha is the way you walk, the way you go about your religion. And so they have taken this term that's deeply meaningful in, in, the, in the church, and they've changed the way they look at it. They've used it as their title, as who they are. This is the way. This is the way to go about it. This is the way to follow the Messiah. So this man Saul, now again, his name will become Paul, so try to, try to keep those things in both of your hands. This man Saul has gotten letters so that if he finds anyone of this group, this group called the way, whether men or women, no distinction, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So you can get the picture of what he's doing. Paul is going to arrest people. He's going to bring them back for, pro- for prosecution in Jerusalem. He actually has them, uh, he apparently is not someone who, who physically grabs them and kills them. He brings them back. They go on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they're then killed or other things done to them as a result. We know that during this time, during this early, step, early steps in the church's history, Stephen, this guy that we mentioned already, who was one of the lead deacons in the church, and James, the brother of John, were both martyred during this time. Uh, they were planning to martyr Peter. Didn't happen. And John, didn't happen. But all of these are the, the early steps of what's happening in the church. This guy, Saul's at the front of this. He's right in the middle of this. He's right on top of this. He plans to make this his life's work. So I'm looking at, looking at Saul's box. And I'm thinking about what's in his box. What's in this man's box? What, what drives this guy with such passion? What makes him be willing to go to Damascus to hunt down Christians? Damascus is 140 miles away. I checked this week. That's the distance, distance between Rockland and San Jose. That's a long way. It's 140 miles before there were cars. Most people would have walked it. At a really good clip, it's seven days of walking. Most people would have taken up to maybe 10 or even 14 days to make this trip. So if this guy is walking 140 miles to hunt down Christians, he's pretty serious about it. He's committed to it. This is a guy whose religion is really important to him. There's something in that box. Saul is a man of absolute passions, right? Wouldn't you define him as passionate? Saul is a passionate guy who lives by a set of religious values that he holds so firmly that he's willing to have people killed for them. Saul is a very passionate religious guy who holds those things so firmly he's willing to have people killed for them. Wouldn't you call him a terrorist? Isn't this guy a first century terrorist? Isn't he there to terrorize the church, to make them afraid, to attack them? Wouldn't he be on the no-fly list? Wouldn't he be on the terrorist watch list if he were around today? This guy is passionate about his religion. I've been using the word religion on purpose because a lot of folks get really passionate about religion. Religion often has in a box the idea 
that I need to keep everybody within my structure of rules. I need to keep everybody within the boundaries that I believe are true. Paul sees these Christians moving outside the boundaries that he has for them, outside the boundaries that the church has traditionally held, and he sees that as threatening. I believe that's at least part of what's in his box. He has a deep commitment to religious truths. He has a deep commitment to people keeping the right things, doing the right things. Deep inside this box of this very passionate, hard-driving, hard-working guy is this idea, this concept, that other people have to do this right. There was a belief in the first century that if everybody just kept the Sabbath right one time, the Messiah would come. There's beliefs currently in our society that if certain things happen, certain messianic figures will show up. People are still fighting over this same thing. They still have that tucked in their box. If I can just get people to stay within the boundaries, the appropriate boundaries, then I can get the Messiah to come. I can manipulate the history of mankind, end the problem of sin by getting people just to stay within the boundaries. You see how that would make someone really passionate about their faith? Because these Christians, it's this growing sect of people, a branch off of Judaism. They're causing all sorts of problems and nobody is staying in my box. They're crawling out. Like those snails that magically appear in your garden overnight. We don't know where they came from. They just materialized. These Christians are crawling outside the box. And Saul believes he is on a mission from God. I kind of wish I had a black fedora and some dark sunglasses right now, just for those of you who are 45 and above. But Paul believes, Saul believes, that he is on a mission from God. That this is the work of God that he's doing. Jesus warned the disciples. He said, there's going to be a day when people who persecute persecute you will think they're doing the will of God. That's this guy. Because he has to keep everybody in this religious box. His deep commitment is that everybody stay within the structure of what's been built. What Moses built, what Abraham had, what the, what the, the, the rabbis have taught, what's in the Talmud. They have to stay within this, this framework. If they get outside the framework, who knows what will happen? Saul is also gaining power and prestige in this moment in history. Now, don't let, don't let this get away from you because... When you, when you get passionate about something, when you start driving like he is, and people start supporting you, there are people who will stand on the sidelines and applaud your attitude. They will stand on the sidelines and applaud your action. They won't do it themselves, but they'll applaud your movements. As Saul is going about this business, there are people on the side saying, you go, you get him, buddy, sick him, sick him. You go get him. He's the attack dog of the person who will clap but isn't going to get involved. Prestige has come with it, though. Power has come with it. And those things just feed these passions. Saul is expanding the impact of this ministry of his. He's expanding the impact of this ministry in Damascus. He's now going to become influential in the synagogues in Damascus. Think of what this will be like. Once he gets influenced there, the impact that he'll have is spread now. It's, he's become more than just a guy in Jerusalem. He's become this guy who's starting to impact the rest of the church, the rest of Judaism. 
Now here's the moment we catch Saul. He's traveling to, to Damascus. Now, I don't know why I have this in my head. I've always had him on a horse. I don't know why. I read the text. I kept looking at it. There's no horse. I don't see it in the, anywhere in the, in the text. He's apparently probably on foot. No horses mentioned. No donkeys mentioned. He's not even riding a goat. What, there's nothing. He's just walking, apparently. So get the horse out of the picture. He's been walking for days now, he and his companions. He's got a couple of guards with him, a couple of guys probably from the Sanhedrin. There were certain church, uh, church police. I'm really glad we don't have this in church. These were, these were like policemen for church, making sure church was done right. Can you imagine if that was, uh, how that would work? Now, can I stop you for a second if you're one of the unofficial police of the church? If in your church, you're the person who stands out there in the foyer as people come by and you give them a yes or a no mentally, this one passes, this one doesn't, this one passes, this one, oh, I got to talk to her, man, gee, not only is she not going to pass, she's in, she's in big trouble. God doesn't need police. God has the Holy Spirit. He convicts and works with people, teaches and, tr- and guides them. If God calls you to speak to someone, spend a good long week talking to God about that before words come out of your mouth. Because some folks jump into, God told me I should tell you, way before it's actually true. So there were police, there were literal police to assert and to force people to get back inside that box. So these guys are with Paul. He arrives near Damascus, so his journey his journey's coming near. Apparently he's very near. As he arrives almost in Damascus, so just think the gates are in sight, the, the city's in sight. It's, it's a beautiful entry to the city of Damascus. You come up over a set of hills, and you drop down on the other side, and Damascus sits in this valley. In the springtime, it was this green valley with this white city, lime, white limestone city in the middle of it. Apparently quite a beautiful thing in the first century. <clears throat> As the apostle starts to descend, gets very near the cities, walking, his, his end is near, the arrival is near, he's beginning to feel that bed coming, he's beginning to, to think about getting some fresh food, all of those things are in his mind as he gets near, and as he's arriving near the city, the Bible says he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him. Now this story is told three times, we find out it's midday when this light falls on him. So this bright light at midday, at noon, at the highest moment when the sun is in the sky, This guy has this huge, very intense, very bright light that surrounds him. It's such an intense light that his next action seems to be just automatic, that he fell to the ground. It doesn't say that he was knocked to the ground. And understand that that a religious posture of the day would for him to fall down, put his face on the ground, his hands out in front of him. That would be a, a bow. And so he falls to the ground. Bright light, he falls to the ground, and he heard a voice speaking to him. Now, we read these things in the Bible like they happen to everybody all the time. They don't. This is a highlight reel of highlight reels. Understand, he hears a voice speaking to him. Bright light shines. He falls on the ground. The guys who are with him are apparently going, what is up with this guy? He begins to, he begins to, to, to stay there on the ground and a conversation ensues. They also hear the voice, we're told. Saul. Saul. Now, don't, don't think God stutters. This happens a lot in the Bible. Samuel's called twice, several people in the Bible. God speaks to him twice. I think it's like, hey, are you paying attention? Look at me. Come on, pay attention. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
I want to I, I rest here for a minute. The apostle is on his way. This, this guy who would be the apostle who writes a third of the New Testament, this guy who would be the theo, theologian of grace, this guy who would be the father of church after church after church, who would see thousands and now millions, even a billion people who can trace their Christian, their spiritual lineage back to him. That guy is outside the, the gates of Damascus with the plan that he's going to go inside, grab all the Christians he can, and drag them, kicking and screaming, back to Jerusalem for trial. That guy, right outside the city of Damascus, is knocked to the ground by Jesus. Jesus stops him. As if Jesus put up a stop sign and said, Stop, don't go any further. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Are you thankful for anything God stopped in your life? Jesus stops him short of his destination and of the application of what's in the box. Jesus stops him in his tracks before he enters in and involves himself himself in the lives of these other people. Why didn't he do it before? You think about that and you wonder, well, there's a lot of Christians that have been impacted by this guy. Stephen was killed as a result of partly this guy. How, why, why, is this, why is this guy being stopped now and not before? I think sometimes we need to be alone before God can get our ear. Saul's been traveling with these guys who are, they're kind of unclean. They're, they're, they're soldiers, they're policemen, they're... For, for a religious guy like Paul, a Pharisee like, like Saul, and yes, I'm probably going to just throw these names back and forth all day long. For a religious guy like him, these guys would be kind of unclean. And so he wouldn't spend a lot of time chumming up with them. It wouldn't be a real, a real congenial relationship. And so he was pretty alone. So for the, for the 7, 8, 10, 12 days that it's taken to get there, he's had a lot of time with his thoughts. And as things are mulling over in his head, I wonder if he sees Stephen breathing his last. I wonder if he hears the voice of Stephen declaring that he can see God in heaven. I wonder if the people whom he's arrested start to haunt him in that moment. I wonder if he starts to wonder. I wonder if he starts to wonder. Is this really what I'm supposed to do? Because if if this is what God is calling him to, this guy's job is to end Christianity before it can get too much traction. Failing miserably. But he's passionate about it. Now that he's been traveling for a while, now that things have been a little different, now that things have quieted down, Jesus stops him. So let me ask you, now that you've been shipped home by a virus, now that you're not at your office as regularly as you were, now that you're not as engaged in your job as you were, now that you may be working from home, now that things have changed, that things have slowed down, and now you're at home and you're, you're in front of your family on a regular basis, you're actually eating some meals around the table, you've stopped the regular patterns of your life, these last few weeks have given us time to self-examine. This guy's been walking along and apparently he's in a mode, in a mood where he can hear from God. 
This guy's been walking along, and God finally speaks to him. I wonder if God's been speaking to you during this time. I wonder if God's spoken. I wonder if God is, has brought anything to your attention. I wonder if God is examining what's in your box. I wonder if God is asking you to examine what's in your box. What is it that's motivating you? What is it that's impacting your life? What is it that's driving you? For some of us, we're driven out of the sheer fear of failure. We're we're so afraid of failing that we'll work ourselves right into the ground. For some of us, inside that box is a drive to make more money. Maybe we were poor when we were kids. Maybe we're just trying to keep up with dad and mom and what they had and what they made. The drive for money is pushing us and we're, we're way outside of our comfort zone. We're not seeing our family as much as we'd like to. But man, every time that, that raise comes, we keep pushing because that's the reward we've been looking for and that's what's in the box. Has God been asking you to examine that? Has your paycheck is maybe squeezed a little bit? You're starting to watch your savings account diminish a little bit? These last few weeks, as things have tightened up for you, is God saying, do you really want to spend the rest of your life chasing a dollar? For some of us, it's, it's prestige, which I'm sure was part of what was going on with Paul. There's a, there's a ladder, and we're climbing up the ladder. We may be actually at the top of that ladder. Well, the problem with getting to the top of the ladder is there's no more motivation to grow. There's no more motivation to get to a next rung. You've gotten to the top of the ladder. You're looking down at all the people you've stepped on on the way up, and all you see is bruises left behind you, and the reward hasn't been all that it was cracked up to be. You and I have been sequestered and stuck at home, and God's been giving us opportunity to take a look at our lives and ask what is motivating what I'm doing. What is the thing that's driving the way I spend my time? You see, Saul had been walking for days. And before he did any more damage to the believers, Jesus stops him. I think for a lot of us, come June or July, when whatever normal we return to becomes our normal, for a lot of us, when we get to that spot, there might be something different in the box. For a lot of us, when we get to that moment, we might be really thankful that Jesus stopped us. We might be really thankful that we got knocked off our horse or knocked to the ground and had a confrontation with Jesus during these past six or eight weeks. Because when he stops us, when he can pull us away from our devices and our information junkie behaviors, and he can pull us into a moment of quiet and start to speak to us, he confronts us about what's in the box. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's an important question. Why? Why are you going to work? 
Why are you investing the time in the way you are? Why are you going to the gym? Why are you out pedaling that bike around town? Why are you not? Why is McDonald's your restaurant of choice? Why do you get five hours of sleep a night? Why do you stay there for 12? Why? Why? What's in the box? What's the source of all of it? Jesus has stopped you. Jesus has stopped me. And when we're stopped, he can speak to us. A bright light drives Paul to his knees. Jesus begins to speak to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asks the obvious next question, who are you? Who are you? And the word here is Lord. It's the, it's the word that regularly gets translated Lord. It could also just be sir, master. It can be somebody of superior uh, status than I, to me. Why are you persecuting me, Paul, Saul? Who are you? The answer to this will change his life. He will never be the same after this answer. After he gets this answer, he, everything will change. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You and I need to think about this too. There's a lot going on here. For Paul, this is a shock. Everything in the box just got changed. For Paul, this explodes his world. Nothing will be the same after this. If he takes this vision seriously, nothing will ever be the same after this. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who are you? I am Jesus. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, I want to add a, a, a layer of this in the grace of God in the church. Do you realize what, this, what just happened? Let me back this up to the playground for you. All of us do better with, with illustrations from the playground. I knew two kids that I went to elementary school with. One was a, a little guy. We'll call him T. T never really got that growth spurt that everyone's supposed to get when you hit puberty. You know, as, a, as an elementary school kid, he was small, but we all expected he would grow, that he would he'd hit that moment when he would pick up a foot, you know, and he would just suddenly grow. Nope. 7th, 8th, ninth grade, T stayed about the same. He was growing along nice and slow, staying right there around 5 feet. For T, 5 feet meant bigger attitude. He had to be big in some proportion. And so, man, he got a mouth. Um, he, got, he got thinking that he could take on the world. I don't know where he is today, but I hope he survived it. Because, man, the day he called me out in the 7th grade... I, I was humored by it because he was so small. I, I, I didn't know what to do. I literally put my hand on his head and held him back like, they, like, like a cartoon character. And I, 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 I don't, I, there was no reason. To, I don't know what he was angry about. I just decided he, I was the next guy he was going to take a shot at. And it was weird. T had a buddy. We'll call him Jay. Jay, on the other hand, 
was the biggest guy in class most of my life. Jay wasn't big around. He was tall and strong-looking guy. He was just he was just the biggest guy. And uh, he had been kind of threatening and a bully kid as we grew up. But the day that T decides he's going to kick me out, Jay comes along. And as long as Jay stayed out of it, this was not going to be a problem. But see, the deal was, T had a backer. He had somebody standing up for him that would defend his mouth. He had this big guy. Happily for me, we had had a discussion in the third grade that settled our standard in life. But T followed J because J was his protector. I want you to hear Jesus say, when you attack my church, you attack me. I stand behind these people. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you? I'm Jesus. And these are my people. And when you attack them, you attack me. What I'd like you to understand about this is, like my friend T understood, having a big guy in your corner will help you a lot in life. And Jesus is in your corner. No matter how hard things are going, Jesus doesn't bail. He stays with you. Scripture talks about God collecting our tears. You know how close you have to be? How, how proximal you have to be? How close to someone's face to collect their tears? Jesus is collecting the tears, the church. He's right there with us. Good days, bad days, happy days, sad days. He said, Saul, you're persecuting my people. That means you're persecuting me. So as you sit at your home, sit in your seat, those of you who are in here, the handful of you for the live stream, all of the things of your life, you can be certain Jesus has your back. Jesus has your back. He will walk with you through them. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. All of a sudden, Saul's box starts to be weird. You don't want to find out in the middle of a battle that you're fighting for the wrong side. You don't want to find out in the middle of a fight that you're on the wrong team. And that's what just happened to him. He just discovered that everything that was motivated by this deeply passionate religious fervor of his in his life was wrong. He was on the wrong side. You know what's great about God? A lot of things, obviously. But he offers grace when we don't deserve it. If there's anybody you wouldn't want God to offer grace to, it's this guy. This guy has, has attacked believers. He's destroyed them and destroyed their lives. He's caused them to be killed.
And Jesus comes along, slows him down, gets his ear, says, hey, 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 Saul, you need to stop. You're on the wrong side. The next statement is, is, the, is the root of the whole spiritual life. The root of everyone's spiritual life is in the next statement. He says, okay, we just emptied your box. We took everything out of the box. Now, go into town and wait for instructions. That's your spiritual life, right? Take the step in front of you, and when you get there, wait to be told what the next step is. Go into town and wait for instructions. Take the step that you are shown and wait for instructions. Take the next step and wait, because we, we just emptied your box, and now you don't know what to do. With all that passion and all that religious fervor and all that drive, What are you going to do with it? Take the next step and wait. And just just so so this works well for you, I'm going to take away your sight. The Bible says that when Saul opened his eyes to get up from the ground, he was blind. He had to rely on these companions of his to lead him into town. They get him into town. They get him into lodging. And his world has gone completely dark. His box is empty. His motivations are gone. His understanding of the world has been disrupted. Everything he's built his life upon has been pulled out from under him. He has no longer an understanding of what his next step should be. You know what God says? It's okay. I'm going to darken things for you. Give you some time to think. And instructions will be coming. I want to say, don't be afraid of the darkness that comes in your life. Don't be afraid of the days that are difficult and dark. God does some of his best work in the dark. God does some of his best work in the dark. He has quieted this guy's mind. He has stopped him on the road. And now he's closed his eyes. You ever had to concentrate on something really hard? You're trying to think something through. You're trying to work some problem out and you closed your eyes. When you close your eyes, you shut down a lot of the activities that your, that your eyes are taking in. Your eyes are filling information in your brain all of the time. They're throwing information at you. You close your eyes and you can concentrate differently. People do it all the time. You probably have done it. You close your eyes to think about something. You close your eyes because you just got to get this right. You think. In that moment, you also know you say to everyone around you, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. You close your eyes and you want quiet and you want dark. Paul's eyes have been closed by God. The Bible says for three days he didn't eat and he didn't drink. He sat there in the dark, wondering what should go back in the box. What's, what's going to be in the box now? I'm obviously not going to be killing Christians. 
I'm obviously going to be kicked out of the Sanhedrin. I'm obviously going to lose my identity as a Pharisee and an upcoming teacher in Israel. All my prestige is gone. My financial security is gone. My way of life is gone. My understanding of the world is gone. All I have left is this empty box. All I have left is an empty box. Nothing in it. And God, in his mercy, shuts his eyes. Some people think that Paul's eyes were closed out of punishment. I don't think so. I think Paul's eyes were closed out of grace because God knows how disorienting this day has been. We're going to fill in more of this story next week. But I don't want to leave him there blind. Across town, and we'll meet this guy next week more, there's another believer. You know what's in his box? His relationship with Jesus. It's not religion anymore. It's relationship. You see, religion can make a terrorist out of you, but a walk with God will transform your reasons to exist. And this other guy has a box, and in the box is his relationship with Jesus. Transformative, powerful, overwhelming. Nothing else matters. All the other things that used to be crowding for a moment, for crowding for a space in the box, are out. And only Jesus is in there now. Saul sits there empty and blind, wondering what to do next and waiting for instructions. And at some point in that three days, a, a small vision is given to him. And he sees a guy named Ananias in his dream, in his vision, who will come and help him. Just across town, in another room, communing with God is a guy who has Jesus in his box. And the same Jesus who spoke to Saul three days later speaks to Ananias. And he says, buddy, I need you to go do something for me. There's a guy named Saul. He's staying in a place on the street called Straight. He's blind. I want you to go and heal him. <laughs> this is against everything Ananias knows to be okay. This is against everything Ananias believes. He can't understand why anyone would want to help this guy, let alone a Christian. But the Lord says, go. So within a few minutes of that Call to go. Ananias knocks on the door. I just picture the the fear. I don't know if you've ever knocked on cold on doors. You don't know who's on the other side. It's a little bit scary. He knocks on the door. One of the guards, as the only other people with Saul, opens the door. 
the persecutor's tool opens the door to let the persecuted in. Must have freaked him out just a little. But remember, Jesus is in his box. And Jesus has already said, if they persecute you, they persecute me, so I've got your back anyway. He walks into the room. It's obvious who Saul is. He's the guy who can't see. He walks over. Places his hands on him. And he says, Brother Saul. The persecuted brother is the persecutor because their mutual brother is the Son of God. What's in your box? Is it empty? What's in your box? Is Jesus? When you go on his errands, it changes everything. Saul's sight is restored. Saul's name is changed. And this man, who has been motivated by religious hatred, hears the first voice of a Christian whom he's not persecuting call him brother. crazy world. When Jesus is in our world, it's a crazy world. It's an amazing world. Fantastic world. If Jesus is not occupying your box today, if you let him in, it's going to be amazing. Father in heaven, we all have one of these boxes. We may not have even thought about it until this morning. But there's a, there's a place where we keep our core motivation. Some of us who are Christians keep putting you in, taking you out, putting something else in, taking that out, putting you back in. And we struggle to stay on a, on a trajectory with you because other things keep crowding you out of the box. Father, I, I pray. I pray that you would take sole possession of mine. And sole possession of all of us who are listening. that we know 
what should motivate tomorrow is our walk with you. The things we discover in your word. The things you whisper in our ear by the power of your Holy Spirit. The things we learn from people who have followed you for more years than we. Lord, I ask for you to take first place in our box. Push out all the other stuff and be the sole occupant. Thank you for stories like this. Stories of redemption for those who are very, very, very far away from you. Because it helps us know that this might even mean there's a chance for us. We are blessed. We are grateful. And we accept. In the name of Jesus, because of his spilled blood and the reality of the resurrection,